daily news and analysis. We keep you informed and inspired. This is World Today. Hello and welcome to World Today. I'm Zhao Ying. Coming up, nearly 4 million domestic trips have been made in the first three days of China's Golden Week holidays. We bring you more on China's holiday consumption. The head of the IMF has called for the organization to adapt to changes in the global economy, particularly China's rise over the past decade. Should China be granted more voting power in the IMF? Donald Trump's civil trial in New York has begun. What's at stake and what could happen next? First on today's show, tourists have made nearly 395 million domestic trips in the first three days of China's mid-autumn and National Day holiday, an increase of 75% compared to last year. The Ministry of Culture and Tourism said domestic tourism revenue reached 342 billion yuan, up 125%. The popularity of scenic spots, urban leisure, rural tourism and visiting relatives and friends have increased significantly. In Hangzhou, where the Asian Games are ongoing, authorities expected over 20 million tourists during the event that runs through the holiday. Meanwhile, China's Ministry of Commerce says sales of major retail and dining enterprises nationwide rose more than 8% from last year. For more on China's holiday consumption and the economy, Zhao Yang spoke with Chen Jiahe, Chief Investment Officer at Norweb Arcade Technologies. So, Jiahe, this is the holiday time. So, what are the key highlights that you have observed in the tourism, in the services industry? Many of those businesses are quite busy this week, right? Yeah, I think they have been extremely busy. I mean, we can witness uh, the hotness of China's um, holiday. I mean, this uh, Middle Autumn Day plus the National Day holiday, which has been at least eight days for 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 everyone. So it has been a really long holiday. We have seen that everyone's well, everyone's actually going out. Uh, and if you if you look at the data published by uh, different places, I remember that uh, Beijing published the data said that the tourists uh, coming to visit Beijing in this holiday has been about thirty percent more than uh, the people in uh, 2019, which is before the pandemic. And the Sichuan said that they got like over 100% more tourists compared with a year ago. Uh, so, so we have seen that the overall tourism industry has been extremely busy for, for, this, uh, for this week, you know. Uh, the whole data will not come out until I think probably the 8th of October, which is after the holiday, but um, I think we can just expect that the data will be extremely good and surprise the market. I mean, usually you see this kind of leading indicators before the official data is published out. I mean, for example, recently we just had a pretty good PMI. But before that, people have been knowing that China's um, uh, industry has been, uh, you know, reviving basically because the uh, electricity used has been increasing. So, I mean, the same thing for tourists is that uh, tourism industry is that you see all these people traveling around. You, you, you will know there is a very good data coming out uh, a few days later. Mm-hmm. And box offices, uh, e-commerce and also the traffic flows and tourism flows, especially compared to the pre-pandemic levels, we are also seeing that some reports on the cultural tourism here in China. So Jiahe, what's your take on how the cultural factors are really contributing to the new consumption demand here in China? 
Well, the, the Chinese culture is a very rich culture. I mean, China is a is a is a large country. I mean, it's it's one point four billion people, a vast nation, and the culture actually differs from place to place. Um, actually, even the the way people speak, uh, the, the accents actually differs from region to region. You can see all different cultures. I mean, if you go to Hainan, uh, you feel something extremely different from Sichuan, and if you go to like uh, Nanjing or Beijing, you see different culture everywhere. So people travel to see different culture. I mean, you don't travel to a place to, to see exactly the same thing as you can see at your home, right? I mean, you want to see something different. Uh, and the culture is uh, one of the most important things for people to see because uh, basically speaking, there are two types of uh, tourism traveling. Uh, one is the culture related, the other is natural viewing related, but it's not everywhere has a very good natural viewing that is different from your hometown, uh, but everywhere has a different culture. So the, um, the using of culture in business activities these years has actually attracted much more consumers than before. Uh, people enjoy the spanning with a different culture. Mm-hmm. And how can global companies operating here in China be a goods company or a services company? How can they really better leverage the massive consumption potential of China's holiday season? Well, I think I think the global companies they really have to uh, dig into the Chinese companies and you know hire the local people or anyone around the world who can speak the Chinese who knows about China. Uh, they have to specialize for the Chinese market. Otherwise, they are really losing to the local consu- uh, local competitors. Um, basically, because China is is. China is so huge. I mean, look at the size of its population. It's about 1.4 billion people. So that means China is uh, approximately the same size uh, if you add up Japan, North America, and Western Europe. You put these three markets together, you have a similar population as China. Uh, and China has many specialties. I mean, for example, the holiday is that uh, China has a few um, major holidays, and each holiday is actually different from each other. You know, you, you have something specialized. You have the local culture, you have the local consumption habit, all these kind of things. So, I mean, it's it's very important for uh, global companies to utilize all these kind of uh, local cultures. Uh, the local companies do know these things, but the global companies, they might not know. So it's, they hire someone who knows the Chinese people. Mm-hmm. And Jiahe, you earlier mentioned the PMI and talking about China's economy, China's official PMI numbers, actually good to see that PMI for manufacturing is back on the expansion territory for September. So when we break down, we do see those sub indices that recalls new orders and total output on the rise. So what insights can we draw from those numbers? Well, the PMI number has been growing back to, you know, this pretty good number uh, above 50 once again after it actually reached uh, the the same level back in February and January. I mean, this is the second wave that we see the PMI is reviving. And actually, this reviving is more important than the last reviving. Uh, let, let me recall the uh, short economic history in the past few months is that China walked out of the pandemic in last November. And back in December, January and February, the PMI just came right above 
about 50 because people expect, okay, we're working out of the pandemic, so we're happy and we, we know the economy will go up, so the, the people are confident about the future. But they forgot about one thing is that the real estate market is still under pressure. Or, or say uh, we didn't notice uh, that the real estate uh, you know, uh, cooling would, would be lasting that long. So uh, after that short period of, uh, of the PMI being above 50, the data fell back to the level b below 50 again for about half a year. And now it's the second time it goes back to above 50. That means that Chinese economy has been, well, at least, uh, at least partly working out of the, uh, the cooling effect from the real estate market. Mm. So that's really critical because we know that China is not going to have a very boosting real estate market uh, in the future, at least in the next five years, because we try to contain the bubble in the real estate market. So can the economy revive when uh, still holding a burden from the real estate sector? So the latest data tells that um, there is a possibility that we can do that because the domestic consumption, like uh, you know, the tourism industry, that as we just mentioned, the local consumption, things like that, has been so strong to offset a very uh, a very significant part of the real estate market. Mm -hmm. And as overseas demand gradually picks up, what do you expect for the foreign trade for the rest of the year? I think foreign trade is something that we can expect. Uh, partly is because uh, in, you know in the first eight to nine months of this year, the, the global uh, trade has not been very good. I mean, it's not only for China. I mean, China is a large player in it. But if you look at everyone else, India, South Korea, Thailand, Malaysia, Indonesia, no one is really good with international trade this year. There are multiple factors behind this, and um, and if you look at these factors, I mean, at least three. Factors Factors are well. All the three factors that are causing a negative impact to the global trade is showing some good sign in the coming few months. So you can be pretty positive about the global trade. I mean, there are three very important factors. The first one is you know the interest rate of the Fed, which has been rising to a large extent in the past few years, but that's causing a lot of reducing in investment. I mean, if if you are an investor and you put put your money in the bank uh, and you can get a very high interest rate like five or six percent from the Fed, then, then why would you invest? Why would you trade? You just put your money there. So that reduces a lot of business activity, including trade. Mm. But currently the inflation of the world looks like it's under control, at least much better compared with like two years ago. So there there is a room for the interest rate to fall. Uh, the second is that the trading relation between China and the US is actually turning out to be better. I mean, we have just set up an official connection program regarding economy and business. So it looks like there will be much more negotiations in the future between China and the US. So, so that sounds more stable to businessmen. Mm -hmm. And finally is that, you know, with the long-lasting war in Europe, it looks like the political uh, issue there is becoming you know, better right now. People just get used to be there's a war going on, you know, for like one or two years, and we still do business as we should. I mean, when the war broke out in the first place, I mean, the first few months or first one year, business activities will be stalled. People are just worried. And they don't like to invest or trade anymore. They just hope to see how the war is going on. But now this war has been going on for a very long period of time. And people just have to do the investment again. You just can't hold your money forever, right? So these three factors are all turning to a positive side. So I would say we'll probably see a pretty good growth of the Expo next year. Mm -hmm. And the World Bank recently projected a 5.1% growth for the Chinese economy in the year 2023. So what do you think are the driving forces? Is that high? 
high-end manufacturing, innovation, and what's the potential for China's economy? Well, I think there are a few things that's leading the Chinese economy right now. The most important thing right now is clearly the consumption. The consumption is definitely leading everything. Uh, and secondly, is that when you mentioned the high-end manufacturing, yeah, I mean, China is using more technology, more AI, these kind of things in in its industries. And that's, uh, you know, pushing up the efficiency of the Chinese industries, uh, rising the salary, reducing the total amount of labor hours that you have to use to produce things, all these kind of things, and safe the environment as well. And finally, there is the trade. I mean, the trade has been dragging the economy down slightly this year. Uh, in next year, which is 2024, there will be more room for the trade to grow, and that might push the GDP upward a bit. That's Chen Jiahe, Chief Investment Officer at Nova Market Technologies. You're listening to World Today. Stay with us. You're listening to World Today. I'm Zhao Ying. The head of the IMF has called for the organization to adapt to changes in the global economy, including China's significant economic rise. In an interview with the Financial Times, Kristalina Georgieva hinted at the necessity to give China more voting power. Traditionally, a member country's share of voting power in the IMF is based on its position in the world economy. At present, China holds a 6% share of voting power, although its heft in the global economy is roughly three times as much. For more, we are now joined on the line by Dr. John Gon, Vice President of Research and Strategy at the University of International Business and Economics, Israel. John, thanks for joining us. Hello, nice to be here. Um, so what factors have contributed to this kind of disparity between China's 6% share of voting power in the IMF and its economic position in the world? I think there are two reasons. One is that uh, IMF uh, typically make these kind of adjustments like once every five years or so. And because of the pandemic, it's been delayed. Um, and, and also, um, in effect, it's not going to take place right after the you know, adjustment. So it's going to be a few years before uh, they make that adjustment. Um, I remember the last time they make that adjustment is you know, almost 13 years ago, I think, right? 2010, I think. So uh, it's been quite a while, and China's economy has grown much faster than the rest of the world. Uh, its share of the global GDP is grossly larger uh, than uh, China's voting power share at the IMF, uh, and I think it's about time to catch up with that reality. Now, the, the other reason I want to say is that um, I think, uh, you know, the United States being a, a major uh, stakeholder and also holds largest voting power of the IMF has been sort of blocking to some extent, make things difficult and delaying the adjustment. But, but nevertheless, I think um, this has to happen at some point. And I'm glad to see that uh, the chairman of the IMF this time is going to really push this agenda. Okay, so why is it so important for the IMF to adapt to the changes in global economy, especially China's rise, as emphasized by the I- IMF head? My understanding is that it has to do with the funding sources. Um, IMF uh, member countries uh, have the obligation to make uh, uh, their commitment of funding sources uh, based on voting power, uh, shared of voting power, and, and which also is driven by you know the size of economy. I think IMF uh, is running short on funds uh, as uh, you know few more countries are in financial trouble these days and turning to IMF as the last uh, source, as the last resort of assistance. 
so, so you know, obviously they're looking for some more money from China. Uh, I think that's probably the most important reason. But of course, it's also there's an issue about you know catching up with reality. It just doesn't make sense that China holds only six percent of such a large organization, given China's weight uh, in the global economy. Hmm. But how might an increase in China's voting power impact uh, the IMF's decision making and global economic governance? Um, well, you know, with more uh, um, voting power, the larger voice you have. Um, so I think what it means is that if indeed this happens, what it means is that the, um, China's role in global uh, economic governance uh, is going to be expanded. Um, and I think it's a good thing um, that uh, that's going to happen. Um, you know, for a long time, IMF is pretty much controlled by, by the West, I would say, mostly by the Europeans. Um, and, uh, um, you know, its decisions, its policies, uh, you know, tend to have a uh, sort of a political agenda, in my view. Uh, I think with China's uh, more uh, share of voting as well as a larger more vocal voice uh, in advocating uh, at least China's interests uh, at the IMF. I think, um, you know, the, this uh, landscape of Western dominance can be somehow balanced in my view. <laughs> okay, and as you know, as you said, uh, the U.S. is a major stakeholder in the IMF, and actually U.S. officials have signaled they would veto any expansion of China's voting rights. So what what could be the reasons behind this stance, and what could be its potential consequences? Well, it's, it's purely a, a geopolitical maneuvering. Um, it's um, essentially, I think, you know, Washington views this as a battle over uh, global influence, a battle over a uh, sphere of influence, I guess. Um, so it's, it's not going to uh, just watch China's uh, voice and share at IMF getting larger and larger. Um, it's going to pick up a fight. Uh, fortunately, I think uh, uh, sooner or later, at some point, you know, this is not going to be sustainable by uh, keep ham- hampering China's uh, expanded uh, share uh, uh, in the voting rights. Um, you know, there are other countries uh, who are also watching this. And at some point, uh, it's just it just becomes ridiculous, I think. Um, and it's, it's a position that's uh, getting more and more indefensible. Uh, from a U.S. perspective. Yeah, and and U.S. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen has earlier proposed an equi-proportional increase of IMF quota. That means uh, it would increase IMF lending resources, but not uh, immediately change its um, shareholding structure. Um, How do you look at that kind of suggestion? Yeah, I I view this as part of U.S. uh, negotiation strategy. Uh, It's it's not going to give up everything. It's just going to you know negotiate with probably China and some other stakeholders. Um, You know, give and take. They are trying to essentially slowing down this process. But as I said, you know, sooner or later this has got to change. Um, I mean, they can uh, do things. uh, you know, making things difficult along the way, but uh, eventually it has to change. Mm-hmm. Um, then how do you look at um, the accusations uh, by some Western critics saying that China has hindered debt relief efforts for struggling countries? That's a false narrative. I think uh, you, know, you look at the debt structure of 
several of these countries that are in financial trouble, uh, the share of debt owed to China is actually not much of, it's not at a large portion. Um, you know, there are also other um, larger shares of debt owned uh, in other forms, uh, mostly to Western banks and other financial institutions. Um, and I think when it comes to debt relief, it has to be done proportionally. Um, it's not going to be just uh, resting on China's shoulders to provide that relief. I think all the creditors, all the uh, countries that are involved in providing debt in the past to these countries have to uh, have their uh, equal share in this as well. So um, um, I think we, we, I mean, this is a really a country by country basis. Uh, we need to uh, look at the facts uh, and um, examine, you know, what is really a fair policy here. Now, having said that, I think, uh, you know, China's on a record that it has indeed provided debt relief to some countries in the past. I think China did this as well this year, and I just can't remember exactly which country uh, China provided debt relief to. Uh, but nevertheless, I think and in history, uh, there are numerous examples that China indeed provided uh, debt relief uh, to the least developed countries. Mm-hmm. Okay, and and uh, the the IMF chief also mentioned the need for the organization to adapt to changing global circumstances, including its involvement in climate related issues, food security, and health. Um, I mean, h- how do we understand this? How do we understand IMF's role in in these global issues? Um, yeah, so these are pressing uh, issues. Uh, the world faces right now. Uh, IMF's traditional role has been providing, um, you know, financial backing as a last resort uh, for countries that are in financial troubles. This is its traditional role. I think what the uh, Geljiva is saying is that the IMF needs to be proactively more involved in these um, more uh, important imperatives uh, uh, concerning the climate, concerning uh, food security uh, and, and health. Um, I think uh, she's really talking about expansion of scope in IMF's function. Um, mm. And I think it's a good thing. Uh, you know, these are very important agendas. Uh, and I'm pretty sure that the China's representative at IMF would be supportive of them. Okay. And, and by the way, the IMF said in the latest report that the private sector will need to make a major contribution toward the large climate investment for emerging market and developing economies. How, how do you look at this? Yeah, I think IMF is making a very realistic statement that uh, um, you know these climate agenda projects are not free; uh, has to be undertaken by somebody, uh, and it has to be sustainable. Uh, what sustainable means is that uh, there has to be a business case uh, for this. There has to be a, a cost and return for these investments, and 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 uh, you know it should not be undertaken just by. Um, you know these financial uh, international financial institutions as a as a handout. Um, it, it, you know, at the end of the day, it's the private sector that has to play a much larger role. I think she's more mostly talking about that perspective, uh, and, uh, um, and and I, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. Uh, you know, the, the demand for funding related to climate change is is, is a huge and hundreds of billions of dollars, and this has to be based on a a business model. Um, as opposed to be just, uh, uh, you know, asking for money from the wealthy countries. Mm-hmm. Okay, thank you, Dr. Zhang Gong, Vice President of Research and Strategy at the University of International Business and Economics, Israel. You're listening to World Today. We'll be back in a minute. 
You're listening to World Today. I'm Zhao Ying. Former U.S. President Donald Trump has appeared in court in New York for the start of a civil trial. He's accused of inflating his assets and net worth from 2011 to 2021 to obtain favorable bank loans and lower insurance premiums. New York Attorney General Letitia James says Trump has engaged in persistent and repeated fraud for years. Trump has denied the allegations. William Denslow reports from outside the court in New York. The prosecution alleging that Donald Trump. Uh, and the Trump Organization repeatedly, over a number of years, inflated、uh, the value of Donald Trump's assets for favorable terms、uh, from lenders. They also used an example that Michael Cohen, Donald Trump's former lawyer, was asked to inflate his assets when it came to Donald Trump's defense team to pre- present their opening statements. They refuted、uh, Michael Cohen's claims, saying that he is a serial liar. There was also a little bit of、uh, spicy、uh, rhetoric from Donald Trump. He was unhappy that this is a case that's just being presided over by a judge. There is no jury. I was going to come out and say that, as you know, we're not entitled to a jury, which is pretty unusual in the United States of America. So、uh, you think it's very unfair that I don't have a jury. Just before this trial began in earnest, the judge made a key determination, finding that Donald Trump was liable. For fraud, but there are six key other issues that need to be resolved. Prosecutors have alleged that Donald Trump committed conspiracy, falsifying business records, and insurance fraud. Donald Trump says that this is a witch hunt, and he says that this is another example of the Department of Justice being weaponized to thwart and hamper his efforts to win the presidency. That is William Denslow reporting. And for more, we are now joined on the line by Professor Chu Bo, China from China Foreign Affairs University. Thanks for joining us, Professor Chu.、Uh, thanks for having me.、Um, so, first of all, tell us more about what's at stake in this trial. So, actually, this is a civil、uh, lawsuit, and uh, uh, actually, already by now, already、uh, a year long. So, one year ago,、uh, the New York Attorney General. Already filed a lawsuit accusing the former President Trump and his family business, and、uh, three of his children of inflating the value of his assets by billions of dollars, and announced uh, uh, and the general uh, uh, the, the attorney general announced that her office had、uh, had filed a two hundred million lawsuit against Donald Trump, and、uh, by now.、Um, Uh, the uh, the judge uh, Arthur Angaron、um, has already ruled that Trump and his adult sons are liable for、uh, fraud to inflating the value of his golf courses, hotels, and homes on financial statements to secure、uh, loans. So I think the trial portion of the case、uh, will assess what damages will be levied against Trump and how. Uh, judge's decision on strip Trump of his New York business licenses well played out.、Mm-hmm. Uh, so Trump has denied all the wrongdoings and said this is politically motivated. How do you believe the political context is influencing and shaping the dynamics of this trial? So definitely,、uh, when we look at the、uh, this civil lawsuit, uh, the uh, the attorney general and the judge,、uh, both of them are Democrats. Um, and um, and definitely at the very beginning,、uh, no Democrats uh, like uh, Trump, and Trump's business always very、uh, suspicious. And but one year ago,、uh, when the Attorney General、uh, issued her、uh, 
uh, lawsuit against Trump, and he he already um, highlighted the bribes of the three-year investigation. They already said they they already done three-year uh, investigation. It was uh, interviews many uh, witnesses, witnesses, uh, millions of documents, a complaint more than. 200 page, uh, page longs with examples from more than uh, 23 ISIS. So definitely, uh, I think for the Democrats and for uh, and even for the current uh, President Joe Biden, and they try to um, uh, they try to uh, down uh, uh, they they try to lower uh, the political uh, ISIS about this uh, about this lawsuit, but actually. And I think uh, from uh, the, uh, the the tactics of lawsuit uh, for uh, Trump, right? He he definitely will highlight uh, that this is a, a wizard hunt or a, a political. He he is a political uh, uh, victims of the, this civil lawsuits. Mm-hmm. Okay, so what does this trial signify for the ongoing legal challenges and investigations that Donald Trump is currently facing? Uh, so actually, by now, uh, Trump, uh, uh, I think he, he he is one of the most uh, uh, he he is confronting many uh, lawsuits, especially up as a former uh, president. Uh, besides the uh, several uh, uh, this several civil uh, lawsuits, he also confronts many uh, the criminal uh, lawsuits, uh, such as uh, before his presidency, a hush money scheme that may help him win the election and during his presidency his effort to stay in white house by overturning uh, the 2020 uh, election and after uh, the uh, uh, his presidency his treatment of uh, classified material and alleged attempts to hide it from the national archives so i think uh, by now he, he really in um, many uh, tr- uh, in, in many troubles uh, in uh, in the legal process. Okay, so if Donald Trump were to be convicted in this civil fraud trial, what implications might it have on his aspiration for a 2024 presidential campaign? Um, and will he be able to run for office? Yeah, definitely. Uh, so by now, according to the news, uh, the Supreme Court already said uh, that this lawsuit will now uh, uh, will now be, uh, uh, affected his qualification for running uh, the presidency campaign, um, but uh, 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 and also I think that will not affect his uh, campaign. And even he is confronting so many lawsuits, and he is still the number one of currently the number one within the Republican um, uh, the potential uh, um, uh, campaigners. So I think the his real supporters they. Actually, uh, do not care about his uh, this lawsuits. Do not care about his personality, and this is, somehow they just support this kind of um, uh, this kind of president, right? The, the Trump. They really he's a billionaire, and he's uh, caring uh, about the ordinary people, especially uh, the ordinary white uh, uh, male uh, people. Okay, okay. So, I mean, um, beyond those legal consequences, um, how do you think this outcome is going to affect his, um, I mean, public image and and reputation? I mean, as you said, uh, this perhaps won't um, affect his voter base, but what about the the rest of the public? 
Yeah, I, I think uh, so. In, in the United States, public opinion is very, uh, uh, especially I think regarding uh, Donald Trump is very uh, the public opinion on Donald Trump very uh, po- polarized, and uh, the people like the uh, pro left, the Democrats, they just do not like Donald Trump, and his strong supporters they just supporting uh, Trump, but definitely, and this w- definitely will hurt his image because. Uh, he he's uh, he saw us try to show us he's a billionaire. He is a very successful business person. But if uh, the trial prove uh, his uh, his success uh, just built on lies, that, that will hurt his business reputation uh, definitely. Okay, thank you, Professor Chu Bo from China Foreign Affairs University. You are listening to World Today. Stay with us. You're listening to World Today. I'm Zhao Ying. Japan will begin releasing a second batch of nuclear-contaminated wastewater from the Fukushima nuclear plant later this week. Japan began discharging some of the over one million tons of contaminated water in August. This process will take decades to complete. What has been the impact of Japan's move so far, and how does that violate Japan's legal and environmental obligations? My colleague Shi Chindo had a talk with Professor Jia Yubai from the Law School of Nankai University. There has been a lot of discussion surrounding the science or the lack of it that led to the decision to discharge this nuclear contaminant water into the ocean. But from a legal perspective, how do you assess the legitimacy of this decision made by the Japanese government? You know, the water will travel outward and affect uh, many countries uh, surrounding the uh, Pacific. Will this decision be legal uh, as it's, uh, you know, it's a unilateral decision? The Japan's discharge of the nuclear contaminated water is an illegal act. And we can analyze the illegality of Japan's discharge of nuclear contaminated water into the sea from the following legal perspectives, including the international treaties, as well as the customary international law and general principles. Japan is a party to the United Nations Convention on the Law of the Sea. We usually call it the UNCLOS. The convention requires the sea parties to take all necessary measures to prevent the transboundary pollution to refrain from transferring or transforming damage or hazards from one type of pollution to another and to minimize the discharge of toxic and hazardous health substances into the marine environment to the maximum extent practicable. So Japan transfers nuclear with the water containing radioactive substances from its domestic waters, which will move to the high seas and the judicial waters of other states. So Japan's discharge of the nuclear contaminated water into the sea is kind of violation of the UNCLOS. And also Japan is a state party to the Convention of Nuclear Safety. The convention requires state parties with jurisdiction over nuclear facility to assume responsibility for nuclear safety and to implement plans to decommission a nuclear facility as soon as reasonably practical if no reasonably practicable improvements can be made to enhance the safety of the facility. So Japan has transferred the issue of nuclear safety to the world by discharging nuclear contaminated waters with radioactive substances into the sea, which is a violation of its assumption of responsibility 
And also, Japan is a party to the Convention on Early Notification of the Nuclear Accident. The convention applies to transboundary international discharges. And any decision by Japan on the discharge of Fukushima nuclear contaminated water into the sea should be based on cooperation with neighboring countries. However, Japan's option of discharging into the sea is not the most practical method at the disposal of the government of Japan and would allow nuclear contaminated water to flow with seawater to other countries, indirectly transferring the danger from Japanese territory to other countries. And also we can consider this question uh, from the perspective of the customary international law and the general principles of laws. The Japan's discharge of nuclear waste water into the sea carries the risk of causing great harm to humankind as a whole, as well as to the marine environment. In this regard, Japan may incur corresponding liability, including cessation of the violation, non-repetition, and compensation. At the same time, Japan's discharge of nuclear waste water into the sea also violates the general legal principles of international law, such as the principle of precautionary duty of care and the responsibility not to cause environmental damage, international cooperation, voter pays, and the responsibility of state for the compensation, etc. Mm -hmm. Well, you mentioned this uh, existing international uh, laws or convention of the sea or environment uh, uh, because, you know, this incident is unprecedented. So it is the first time we have a, such a worst uh, you know, situation. So I wonder, you know, is there any specific law on such practice, on such incident? Or is there a principle, you know, people generally follow, you know, which is agreed upon by all parties involved? Well, uh, when we talk about the principles accepted, accepted by all sides, actually the relevant principles I have already mentioned, which include the principle of precautionary, the duty of care, and the responsibility not to cause environmental damage. So far as the principle of precautionary is considered, which means that in order to protect the environment, states should apply precautionary measures broadly in accordance with their capabilities. And as to the duty of care, it requires a state to take the necessary measures to ensure that acts under its jurisdiction or control do not cause serious harm to the interests of other states or of the international community. And also the responsibility not to cause environmental damage principle ask states to have the responsibility to ensure that activities within their jurisdiction or control do not cause harm to the environment of other states or of areas not under their jurisdiction. And also there are other principles, including the international cooperation, the brutal pace principles, and the principle of state responsibility and compensation. Uh, although such kind of pollution damage has not happened before, but uh, we may take some similarities for the application of the previous principles to the accidents which may caused by Japan's release of the contaminated nuclear water. We know that the IAEA, you know, the International Atomic Energy Agency uh, Director, uh, Rafael Grossi, uh, talked about the report prepared by the IAEA uh, on the Fukushima nuclear uh, you know, contaminated water discharge 
he said it's not an endorsement of the plan uh, to discharge the water into the ocean. But the Japanese government have certainly seemed to regard it as such, as a clean pass to discharge the water. Uh, so were the Japanese wrong to assume this? You know, what exactly was said in the report? You know, what is the legal base uh, of the report uh, or maybe any legitimacy it provides to the Japanese side to discharge the contaminated water into the mm -hmm. ocean? Well, first of all, this report, its documents refer to the nature of recommendations and guidance, but are not binding in the source in the sense of international law. And IEA was invited by Japan to conduct the relevant assessment and review, and the scope of its mandate was limited to the assessment of the sea discharge option. And IEA report cannot serve as a parse for Japan to discharge the nuclear contaminated water into the sea. And it does not prove that ocean discharge is the safest or best way to dispose the nuclear contaminated water. And secondly, the Tokyo Shinban report pointed out that the Japanese government had in the past paid large amounts of assessed contributions and other payments to the IEA, and that several departments of the Japanese government had dispatched the personnel to the IEA. These factors may have an impact on IEA in its assessment of the safety of Japan's nuclear contaminated water discharge program. So to sum up, it is not a real report that can withstand the test of science and history, I think. That's Professor Jia Yubai from the Law School of Nankai University speaking with Xu Qinduo. You're listening to World Today. Stay with us. You're listening to World Today, I'm Zhao Ying. A Slovak populist party led by former Prime Minister Robert Fico has won the country's parliamentary elections. The Smear SSD party scored 23% in the vote, beating the centrist Progressive Slovakia at 18%. Fico campaigned on a promise to end military aid to Ukraine. He will start coalition talks on forming the next government. For more, we are now joined on the line by Cui Hongjian, professor with the Academy of Regional and Global Governance at Beijing Foreign Studies University. Professor Cui, thanks for joining us. Hi. So can you tell us more about Robert Fiso and his uh, Smear SSD party, and what factors do you think have led to their victory in the elections? Also, you know, uh, Mr. Fiso and his party uh, used to be a very, I mean, strong force in the uh uh, Slovakia uh, politics. Uh, this is the uh, first time, a uh, fourth time for Mr. Fezo. Once he uh, could find out the uh, solution for uh, coalition of government and uh, then become a prime minister. Also, you know, since uh, uh, you know more than ten years ago, he become a very, very uh, you know, uh, force, uh, very big uh, figures in uh, Slovakia politics. And also, uh, he become uh, so uh, 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 controversial uh, for the past time, especially for the last uh, term. As he, uh, as he, uh, when he was a prime minister, because of some uh, uh, the uh, anti-corruption issue or some other, he uh, had to resign at that time. Of course, uh, his party, as we know now. Uh, 
uh, is a you know uh, come from a social democratic party. So, uh, namely, so namely, he and his party uh, has been labeled as a uh, left wing party. But of course, uh, because of uh, he has some uh, uh, you know policy stance of the uh, uh, anti European Union, and also he has some. Uh, he has some, uh, you know, uh, disagreement with some other member states of the European Union. So he has been uh, regarded as a populist uh, figure. Yeah. So, I mean, what, why do you think, what factors do you think have contributed to, to, to his party's victory in, in this election? Also, you know, for the uh, past years, the uh, Slovakia politics uh, has been not so normal. Uh, even for this, uh, uh, before this uh, election, since uh, the end of uh, last year, there is not a, a you know a government on position. So it's uh, a president of Slovakia uh, to uh, you know to organize a government. So this time, once there is a, a result of an election, I think certainly uh, it means that uh, the Slovakia politics is going back to a normal uh, track. But of course, I think that. Uh, uh, the major reason uh, for the victory uh, by uh, Mr. Fito and his party uh, is uh, certainly because of the, uh, uh, you know, currently so big challenges for Slovakia. As we know, not only because of the uh, Ukrainian crisis and also because of uh, its uh, economy. Uh, so far, uh, I think, uh, you know, major of the uh, Slovakia people they suffered a lot from this uh, higher and higher price for the, uh, you know, daily life, and also uh, the less and less uh, hope for, uh, you know, economic recovery. So I think for this uh, moment, uh, Mr. Fito just uh, uh, raised a sim- simple question: that uh, who will who needed to pay for the price for the average people? Mm-hmm. And I think it gives uh, uh, him uh, uh, him so. A lot of uh, popularity and support. Yeah, and as you said, the party has pledged to immediately end military support to Ukraine. What would that mean for the Western efforts to support Ukraine and also Slovakia's relations with with NATO and the EU? Uh, certain, as we know, uh, during the election, Mr. Fedor, uh criticized the policy of the Slovakia government and also uh, the European Union's policy on uh, Ukraine. Especially, he uh, uh, proposed that uh, uh, he and his party will stop any military assistance uh, to uh, Ukraine. And he thinks that uh, his government should do something more to help the Slovakia people. As we know, even uh, before, uh, even uh, during his uh, previous uh, uh, tension as a prime minister, he had uh, good relations with Russia. So that's the reason why. The Western countries now have a big concern that if uh, Mr. Fedor and his party will change uh, the policy uh, towards uh, Ukraine and towards Russia. And I think, you uh, as we know, that uh, so far Slovakia has become a uh, you know, very, very uh, big support uh, for Ukraine. Now, the, uh, Slovakia uh, is ranked the uh, fifth on all of the uh, uh, within all of the uh, Western countries to provide military support to Ukraine. 
uh, I think it will give some more negative uh, signals to other member states of the European Union and NATO that uh, besides uh, Hungary and now the, the Slovakia, uh, maybe will change its policy towards Ukraine. Okay, uh, but what are the potential coalition scenarios and how might these alliances shape Slovakia's domestic and foreign policies in the future? As we know now, the first uh, issue for uh, Slovakia politics is for Mr. Fedor, how could he uh, find a solution to, uh, you know, found a coalition for the government? Now, because uh, there is not a, a party can win the majority in the parliament. So it means that uh, Mr. Fedor needed to get a support from uh, other parties, especially uh, the third one, I mean, the state of Werner for this uh, election, uh, another uh, social democ- democratic party, namely Hellas. But so far, I think it uh, it needs so uh, you know so long time for negotiation to find out a majority by coalition with other parties. Secondly, I think that uh, even uh, once uh, Mr. Fatal and his uh, government. Uh, try to uh, change the policy towards Ukraine to stop the military assistance. Uh, I think it's, um, uh, you know, I, I don't think it will give so uh, big efforts to help the economy for uh, Slovakia. As well as Slovakia is a small economy, and it depends on, you know, oil and gas from Russia largely. Uh, even as we know, uh, the Mr. Fedor and his government uh, change the uh, policy. I think certainly he w- will uh, have to face the uh, you know pressures from other member states and European Union and also NATO. Okay, thank you, Dr. Cui Hongjian, professor with the Academy of Regional and Global Governance at Beijing Foreign Studies University. And that's all the time we have for this edition of World Today. To listen to this episode again or to catch up on previous episodes, you can download our podcast by searching World Today. I'm Zhao Ying. Thank you so much for listening. See you next time.